You're listening to Personal Rejection Letter, the podcast by writers with day jobs. Kelly Daniels. I'm Dan Lipman. And this is our podcast. And where's Holly? Well, Holly is sick. I don't know <laughs> if we want to say anything more than that. So we'll let think... Holly tell you. Yeah. As she chooses. But you should know that it is just the two of us here today in the same room. I'm not on the phone or on Skype. Yeah, I can hear you and I can see you. That's great. How does that feel? Feels good. Okay. Reunited and you <laughs> feel so good. I didn't know there'd be singing. Yeah. Well. It's all kinds of surprises in this uh, podcast. How about uh, we start with our regular feature, which is going to be a little bit more difficult today. Um, and it is when we reflect, like good writers and mm-hmm. professors, on what went on last week. Revision. Revision. Maybe that's what it's called. Um, this, uh, the problem this week is that we didn't get to listen to this uh, last week's episode yet because it hasn't been engineered Mm-hmm. By our whiz kit, part, he's trying to fix all the problems that Dan, not to make you feel bad, yeah. but um, created by calling in on a cell phone. And at least I was here, Holly. Yeah, that's true. You're here in spirit ish. <laughs> um, so, but I guess the big question when it comes to our our discussion of revision or reflection. Do you have do you have any memory of what we said last week at all? I was sitting in a car in a Starbucks parking lot with a stolen Starbucks for here cup in my car because <laughs> I thought I was going to be in the store. And um I had no I hosted that show. Yes. I was the lead host. So I should have some memory of it. And I I believe um I don't recall. I remember that when we did the revision segment that week, Holly said that she had nothing to apologize for. And I remember thinking that is what I aspire towards. Yes. So um, in that spirit, I might say that, although I know I did say a few things wrong. One is that I couldn't remember the name of The Long-Winded Lady, which was a book I was reading at the time. And that's sort of scary just on a personal level. Um, The other thing is that I attributed a quote to you about country music, which you had no recollection of saying. I probably should have cleared that with you first. No. But those are personal apologies. No, I like that. Yeah. I like being quoted on things I didn't think I said. <laughs> I mean, because then I imagine that I did say it and don't. And so I'm saying all these things that are noteworthy to people that I have no memory of so that, that could there could be this giant pool of wisdom right. that I can't access, but yet I can assume is there. If you had to remember all the smart things you said, I mean, you'd go nuts. <laughs> I think you wouldn't right. have time to say Well, I have smart. to dump so I can make right. room for new. Um just like a data sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Or we have so much data. Yeah, eating too. That's true. What um, about you? What do you apologize for? I get really squeamish in hindsight when I f- think back and I'm kind of building myself up and bragging. And I think when we were talking about our current um, work publishing kind of thing, and I started talking about the magazine that... Right. And I just... I think I, I started off with factual information and then started warming up into boasting. And <laughs> I always feel like somebody else should should talk about my accomplishments and I shouldn't be on this podcast like I'm so great. And so I felt like that in hindsight. And that so would I guess require... I would like to, I'm sorry. 
Go ahead. No. It would require pre-planning on our part to like say, here's what I want you to brag about. No, me. no, I wouldn't want you to do that either. I just think it should come up naturally now and then. And and I know that self-promotion is part of this this whole game, and it's the part that me and I think a lot of writers feel uncomfortable about, and yeah. and yet others feel absolutely comfortable about <laughs> it, and so they. You, you find yourself in a situation where, okay, I can hold on to my dignity and not boast and brag and um, and build myself up to bigger than I probably am, or I can just sit back with my dignity and not, but then not succeed because all the other louder people are getting the attention. And but I don't know. I don't know if it really works that way. Well, being self-effacing is sort of a, a mask that I I particularly don quite a bit. I'm very comfortable with it, but then sometimes you do have to actually, you know, I mean, maybe we shouldn't say brag about yourself, but promote yourself a little bit. And it's uncomfortable. I find that much more uncomfortable than just saying, well, I suck. And, uh, yeah. you know, when I teach creative writing and we always talk about submitting and I always try to explain, look, um, you guys are going to be a lot more successful at this than I am. I could tell by your writing and my ratio hits to misses is going to be a lot higher well, a lot lower. Well, math is not a strong suit, but it, you know, and data. But I realize that people don't want to hear that. They actually want to hear some level of understanding of your own success, your own, and being affiliated with the Sun is something to talk about. That is something to uh, to to brag about. Yeah. I, so feel not I guess bad. I, where I went over the line is when I mentioned how much they pay. Like that, oh yeah, and that's just sort of tacky <laughs> on other levels, even the non-writing thing. Yeah, like, that was horrible. Was, was it horrible? No, no. I'm just. Oh. I don't remember. Was it a lot? It was four figures, right? It was a thousand dollars. Is that four figures? I think so. Yeah. That's how much they pay. Four figures. That's how much they pay. That's more than I got paid from the Paris Review. Mm, you got it in the Paris Review, though. Yeah. Not to brag. I bragged one about the distribution of the <laughs> Sun. They have seventy thousand readers, and you said, "Oh, yeah, that's about half of what the Paris Review has." I remember. Yeah, I don't remember that at all. That was awesome. <laughs> You're just like I just like shut up. Joyce something. <laughs> okay. Well, um, someday I'll tell you the Paul Rudd story in relation. <clears throat> excuse me, to the Paris Review, but I'll save that for another time. Ooh, it's good. it's a self-effacing story. Teaser. Yeah. Teaser. Maybe. Um, what are we talking about today, Dan? Well, this is your topic. I've got my topic here. Okay. I believe this is the MFA topic. Yeah, MS, MFA versus NYC, and then I added versus none of the above. Okay. And what does MFA stand for? <laughs> That's Master of Fine Arts wow. in Creative Writing. Um, the topic, the name of the topic, comes from a book, an anthology that came out a few years ago. Do you know that one? No. Oh, really? Um, some semi-famous youngish writer, one of those, not Dave Eggers, but that kind of, probably younger than him, mm -hmm. but anyway, maybe one of those N plus one Beller people. I don't know. Okay. I have no idea who did it, except that it was somebody that already was known, um, edited an anthology of essays in which writers of all stripes discussed the pros and cons of getting an MFA versus just going to New York and trying to become a New York City publishing writer. Hmm. Um, and, uh, the, and it was loosely, some of the essays weren't, I didn't read the book, but a lot <laughs> of the essays ended up on the internet yeah. just as their own little blog pieces kind of, um, <clears throat> one of them was real interesting. I don't know how much it, it spoke to the specific MFA versus NYC, but it was about money and the amount and how <laughs> the relationship between being rich leads and being a successful writer is pretty tight 
and one that almost mm -hmm. nobody will admit to. So the correlation of bringing money into when you start, bringing money to New York City. When you you could go to New York and not yeah. work right. for five years and live in a cool apartment. Right. And, and then you just sort of write. And maybe once in a blue moon you publish something and get paid $1,000. But it's not – and then you pretend that you're a freelance writer. But really what you are is a rich person right. who's just living. And then there was a guy that moved to um, a Greek island for – I think he ended up being there for like eight years and then wrote this amazing book, according to the author of the article. And she said it was amazing. I mean, it's a great book. But who gets to go to a Greek island for eight years and write a book? I right. mean, that and, and that guy's wealth, family wealth is what it was, is what. And so anyway, that's probably a separate type, um, subject even. But uh, that's what I remember from the book. But today we're just going to talk about different strategies for – strategy sounds almost too thought out. I think usually it happens more by accident. But I thought we'd talk about our to getting where we are. And um, maybe uh, – this seems to go out to people who are studying creative writing or who are maybe thinking about studying creative writing, who are thinking about not studying and just people who want to be writers, people who already are writers – teachers who may yeah. need to talk to their students and go, hey, what should I do with my life? And I want to be a writer. And um, so uh, what do you have to say? Well, about you know, there's, there's, it's, it's almost, you know, MFA or NYC sort of suggests like those are the only two options that you have. And but that's uh, why I put none of the above. Or none of the above. I forgot that part of it. Right? Well, I, that's my addition to it. That's not I part would... of the book? No. Okay. I was crit critiquing the books, kind of binary sort of, so, mm, inherently, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you caught that. Yeah, and it was well done. I, I, I guess I did none of the above. Although, just for the record, I would have loved. Oh no, no, I got an MFA. I got an MA. I don't even have an MFA. No, I have no terminal so degree. You're just art, but not fine art. Yeah, I, I'm, that makes and sense. I'm a master of art. Yeah, I think once you put the F in, you're actually limiting yourself. Yeah, to the F to, has to be fine. Yeah, um, I like the vulgar stuff. Crap. Art. There should be an MVA for vulgar art. Um, but you know what happened to me is that I went right after I got my bachelor's degree and this, I'll go slowly if you guys want to take notes. Um, I, um, I went to work in, in, at Abbott Labs, which is a corporation, uh, it was a pharmaceutical corporation. I did quality control, which had nothing to do with what I studied, but my father worked there and got me an interview, probably got me a job, but we like to say in my family that he got me an interview. And, um, I worked there for four years and while I worked there, I was working on my writing and sending stuff out and getting the occasional little hit, but not, not much. You know, and um, eventually I discovered a writer named Stephen Dixon. I just found yep. his book and I just fell in love with his writing. And I saw in the back of the book that he had uh, that he taught at Johns Hopkins. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll write him a letter. And maybe he'll let me sit in on a class. And I, I think I wrote that letter and I think he said that was not possible. And then I thought, well, maybe the, how long could the class last? Probably last a week. I could take a week off. Turned out it was an MA program, and in order to uh, to study with them, I would have to actually get accepted into the program. And there were all these things that I thought would never happen. I had just gotten married to my wife, Molly McNett, who's also a writer, and, although at that point she was writing plays and getting them produced in Chicago. And wow. yeah, I didn't know that about Molly. we got to bring Molly on sometime. She's a fine writer. She is, and, uh, and has an MFA. Yeah. Got the MFA, and an MA in, in linguistics. So she... What? Many, many... What? Many, many irons and many fires. Mm -hmm. um, 
Well, I, it, it, it may not be possible, but the long story short, as they say, which, by the way, is the title of a Stephen Dixon short story collection, is that I applied, I got in. First, I was waitlisted, then I got in. And because Molly, I had just married Molly, and she was, at that point, a little bit more of a free spirit. We all were back in those days, back in the 90s. She said, well, why don't you quit your job? And we'll just go there. And uh, I, it had never occurred to me that I was going to ever quit the job because it was so stable. Mm-hmm. I had been there for four years. My father had been there his whole life, and uh, but we did. We quit the job, and uh, I quit my job, and we moved to Baltimore, and I studied Any with Stephen Any regrets Dixon. ever, like there maybe I should have stuck with a job, or absolutely not? I would be lying if I said I never had that thought, never regretted it. I would probably – oh, well, there's no doubt I would be making a ton more money. But I was pretty miserable, and um, you know the, the modest success that I've had in, in the literature game has, has been pretty satisfying. So, I mean, I'm very happy where I am in life. But, yeah, it's a lot of money that I no longer am earning. And I, I probably won't get that salary that I would have had having stuck with it for 30 years. I just can't see that that is a better move. Like, you know what I mean? Staying? It, yeah, I think that <clears throat> on people's dead deathbeds they never regret i wish i would have made more money and got and kept the the shitty corporate job that was his soul killing it's always the other thing i wish i would have quit my my job and and pursued my dreams and then when you do pursue your dreams they're not dreams anymore they're realities and they become not as sweet all the time but well the other thing that i like to say is that i traded time for money because i i became a teacher and i get my summers off and you really i at abbott labs no offense to Abbott Labs, it was a fine. It's a fine place. It still exists. Um, obviously, uh, I was working. Do you think they might? You know, they're going to listen and probably get angry. But no, they, maybe <laughs> they could throw us a little money, a little sponsorship, and we can make well, sure that whenever we speak of them, we speak of them well. That would not. Yeah, that's. We some, something to think about. <laughs> Abbott think Labs, you're out there. Yeah. Now it's a, a business sc- strategy. Little scratch. Well, they had the schedule was like six days a week, and you know, mandatory overtime. So you really weren't in control of your destiny and it was in the basement of a factory and it was you know 50 weeks a year so the, the lifestyle is a lot better i would hey young people listen you young people always take time always take free time over over money yeah i did it and look where i am i took a sabbatical i took the whole year sabbatical which was the older generation of professors here would never do that and sometimes they skip their whole sabbatical because they're this Lutheran work ethic, like, <laughs> oh, no, I, how could the program exist without me? Right. But the younger people take as much sabbatical as they can. And we have to take to take a full year sabbatical. You take a 50 percent pay cut, mm-hmm. which is a lot of money. Um, <clears throat> I most certainly didn't regret it. It was awesome. It, and that that's that was last year, year. Yeah, that year was. Oh, this is what it's like to be Richard Russo. Yeah. You yeah. know, you just you wake up in the morning see your family off to do whatever they're doing, get your nice coffee, you go to your place that you want to go and write, you write for till lunchtime, Yeah, <clears throat> you have your lunch, do a workout, bike ride, do emails and submissions and that kind of stuff, have a beer, then what? it's time for your, eh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, uh, it was great, a whole year of that, I got so much work done and it was so slow paced yeah. and even though I got a ton of work done and none of that deadline-y feeling of teaching. But, you know, that's why we're writers with day jobs. We're not Richard Russo. No, we're not Richard Russo. I heard him, this is slightly off subject, but I heard him on Terry Gross. And he was saying that he, the last novel he wrote, he had in mind who the move, who would be cast in the movie. And he wrote the characters based on who he knew was going to get the parts in the movie. So that's kind of a little bit I of a different I sort of like lifestyle. him, but that, I don't like that. That's yeah. hard to love. 
Um, <laughs> if you've ever read a Russell Banks, oh yeah, but I've only read one, but I've never read a novel that felt more like a screenplay in my life. Which it, one was it? Do you remember? Affliction, which was a movie with Nick Nolte. I don't remember. Did he write Clockers? Is that the same guy? I might be Clockers. confusing him. No, I don't think so. Clockers, I think, is Price. Oh, you're right. Something you're right. Price. Richard Russell Price. Banks. Anyway, Affliction is about this alcoholic guy in the kind of Rust Belt, and uh, he. Uh, anyway, the you read the I read the novel, and then I saw the movie, and usually there's this pretty significant gap between the novel and the movie. This was word for word, scene yeah. for scene. He also wrote the screenplay, and I bet huh. he wrote he may have written the screenplay before the novel. Yeah. I mean, it was the most transparent novel meant to be a screenplay of. I've read, and, and I think he's a fine writer and a skilled practitioner. Um, but you know, it's it's a business, and people do it to make money. And getting the movie made is to wit is the way to turn a novel into serious money. I guess I don't blame anybody. Those very successful YA books kind of read like that. I don't know if you've ever read that. I've got um, teenage children, so I read The Hunger Games when they were reading it, and uh, I actually didn't dislike reading it. But it, you know, they're sort of a. It's kind of like reading the girl with the dragon tattoo books. They're they're a. They're a mile wide and an inch deep, maybe, and you could all see it on the screen happening. But that said, you know, they're pretty entertaining. I think the idea of the Hunger Games is, <laughs> as far as all those YA books go, it, you know, they're dealing with real yeah. kind of social issues. And there's a, it's not. It's pretty I, subversive, actually. My friend uh, Mike Batts was talking about the difference between the Hunger Games and the Twilight. It's like the big, the big um, conflict or moral decision to make in Twilight is, should I date a vampire or a werewolf? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and really, that's about as deep as it goes, whereas The Hunger Games does give you something to, to yeah. chew on a little bit, like, whoa, this could happen. Well, I, I feel I, I'm next week I already know I'm going to be apologizing for how long-winded I was with my backstory. But just to sum it up, the idea is that, you know, you find instead of picking the program or picking the the dream, you find a writer a particular style that you want to study. And I definitely benefited from, from being in Stephen Dixon's workshops. And um, I got to interview him for fifth Wednesday journal many, many years later. And he's been an inspiration, not just his work, but as his, his sort of personal ethics and all that. Does he also write poetry? No. Oh. I'm just sworn. I read a, kind of a joke poem by somebody, but that must be a different name. It, but you know, some of his work, maybe you could say is prose poetry. There's a lot of, big blocks of prose and mm-hmm. it kind of circles back and um frog is a good place to start i don't know if you read it but it's, no yeah, I, I recommend it yeah it's an undertaking it's it's not short and not easy but yeah it's, i i was inspired by it. your mfa or nyc or other story well i guess i would say that i would love i would have loved to have gone to nyc i've i've always felt a little bit of I guess I'm susceptible to the argument, the anti-MFA argument that is, like, actually my one of my favorite writers, Poe Ballantyne, I talked about him yeah. last time. He, a lot of his essays are kind of about how he's rejected uh, education and uh, rejected the college edge. But it's always a privilege, and eh, I, I don't like to use that word privilege right now. It's a little loaded, but right. it always comes from like, a certain amount of wealth and background and safety net, parental safety net, where you get to say, hey, I'm just going to be a writer. You, and even him, he was not a rich kid, but he was a middle-class kid who always had his, who had really nice, kind parents that 
he always could retreat back to his old bedroom, which he did frequently throughout his life. It always was a big failure and mm -hmm. full of shame, but he wasn't going to ultimately starve to death or freeze to death on the streets. Um, and a lot of these, like the kids who followed the Grateful Dead around, they yeah. mostly had middle-class families that they could go and retreat to. So usually that, that sort of 1950s beatnik artistic aesthetic has to do with people who have enough back support to where they can do that. You can afford to do that. And, um, and so I don't think I had that. Uh, I, well, what I didn't have was the basic educational, I didn't grow up with books and with culture and with education. And so I just, I was <clears throat> after high school and in high school, but after high school, I was working construction jobs and I'd get fired from them or quit them or the job would end and I wouldn't really look for a new job because I didn't like working. Right. And I was jotting poetry that I called poetry. Like a lot of, like even some of the students I've met here at Augustana that call themselves poets, you realize, wait, you've never read a contemporary poem in your life right. ever. Like, and maybe not even an old poem, just really just kind of talking about poetry in terms of the nursery rhymes you've yeah. heard and the Dr. Seuss that you read. And so it's this rhymy, simple, simplistic thing. And I was writing that kind of stuff, like kind of heavy metal song lyrics as poetry, <laughs> kind of, you know, yeah, with yeah. demons and embarrassing stuff completely. And angsty, I bet. Angsty. And just, I had no, I knew it wasn't that good, but I didn't know how to get better. I just didn't know a single, not one of my friends read. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking a pretty, I was pretty social. I had a lot of acquaintances. Not one of them would sit there with a book and read it. And just so I, um, so anyway, that was my first four or five years after high school. And I was writing through the whole time, but producing this stuff that was just, it would just be in notebooks. And um, I remember one time sort of drunk and there was drinking and drug use and petty crime, like shoplifting and just a ugly time and homelessness, sleeping in my car now and then. It was, like, pretty rough. Although I, I tried to f make it feel like it was romantic. <clears throat> um, but I remember one time at this apartment where everybody's doing speed, and it's just this, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning, and all these kind of wastrels are hanging out. And I start crying, at like, this deep soul crying. And I'm, like, 19, wow. so it's, like, not cool to cry. And that It still I, isn't. It isn't. You're right. And I remember the sister of my friend who was, she was like this, wasn't around us very often, but she didn't drink or do drugs or anything. She was like this mascot. She was this like shining purity. Yeah. And she came and talked to me. And all I could say was that nobody understands me, you know, but what I, and nobody understands me. I'm trying to write and nobody I know can, I can even talk to about it. Right. And, and she just sort of talked to me down and it was all very kind of, strung out histrionics more than anything but eventually i thought i gotta go to college that's where i'm gonna meet the people that read the books right and i did and i loved college and it wasn't college was not this is how i'm going to become an, an author i didn't even know like authorship people that publish books that was so far beyond what i was even thinking possible for myself for myself and i didn't know how to how people started those just People other than like people that weren't like me were the people that published books. There was just no 
But college was more just a place to change, you know, to be mm -hmm. a different kind of person, a person that doesn't drink and do drugs all night, which is kind of ironic if you actually know what goes on in a college. But I've read. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but anyway, so I'm I'm there. I started off at a junior college. And even, you know, the modest junior college campus was beautiful compared to the construction site, which was, right. you know, all dug up fresh dirt. Um, I I was not a saint or anything, but when I, on the construction site, I remember being sort of grossed out by the racist talk about the Mexicans and the making fun of their accents that the guys I worked with would do. And the lascivious kind of comments about the lunch truck girl that and I was not like I said, I wasn't such a delicate flower that I didn't say uncool things too, but I just knew this is not the environment for me. Then the college campus was like everybody sitting around the kiosk playing and with a guy with an acoustic guitar <laughs> and you know, it was yeah. awesome. Talking Which school about was books, it? It was called Orange Coast College. Okay. Orange Coast College at uh, in I think it was in Corona Del Mar no, not Corona Del Mar. Uh probably Santa Monica Santa Monica. Santa Ana. Yeah. Anyway, it's Southern that, California. Yeah, it's Orange County. Orange County has all these towns that right. absolutely there's no end to one and beginning of the other. They just tap names on different sections of <laughs> urban sprawl. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, it right. is like that. You can. It's just a giant suburb of Los Angeles. It is. Yeah. All the way to San Diego. Well, there's some beach towns that have character because they're older. Right. But once you get past the beach inland a little bit, it all becomes one big kind of mall like mm -hmm. place and car dealerships and all that and subdivisions. Um, but it was a great experience. And, uh, I eventually creative writing fiction workshop was absolutely my favorite class. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the teachers seemed to think I was okay. The other students thought I could tell I was, you know how you can tell like, Hey, I'm in the top five of these 20 students. Like I can tell I am. based on responses. Yeah. Based on, can, yeah. <clears throat> and just my own sense of reading, like, a lot of these people are not all that good at this. And, mm -hmm. and I'd been writing like dragon, like wizard stories and stuff. Right. And, and I'm like, okay, so I knew something about, about narrative. Um, I found a, an old story that I'd actually typed in that class. My mom had it somewhere in a box and I read it. It was really, really weird and interesting to read. I'll bet. And, it was the voice was off <clears throat> too, trying too hard, trying way too hard. It seemed, it, I mean, absolutely unpublishable, but I read it like, and I thought if I were, if I got this story now, I would think there's some talent here. Right. I like this. Is, there's some energy in this story and it, it, there's a, there's a lot missing and it's off and it's probably years off of, of having, but that was kind of, um, so that's, uh, and eventually getting into the MFA world was when I got out of college after I got my bachelor's degree, you know, I was just a full-time waiter and a traveler and I was just backpacking and it just, there was, I liked being in the college atmosphere better than I liked being out of it. And so I just kept taking classes and, and, and enrolling in new programs once one ended because there was nothing on the other side until finally there was something on the other side. And what, thing on the other side was was more college yeah and uh so here i am and you know and sometimes i do dream of being a, a quote real writer you know and <laughs> and also you know poe ballantyne makes a point that art doesn't doesn't 
um, sort of flourish in a container. Yeah. I do think that I'm sort of a kept man in a way in my being taken care of by, by this job that I have. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for poverty and you know what I mean? And yeah. also, especially when I have a family to, but except sure. what's interesting about your story is that you didn't go directly to college. You had gone to the construction sites and you didn't go directly to the MFA program. You traveled around. I happen to know from reading your uh, memoir that, I mean, you, you acquired a bunch of experiences. And I bet when you were at, when you were in those um, undergrad workshops, you probably were, had more life experience than most of the other people at the table. So you sort of cut it both ways. I mean, you did do the college route, but you also got a lot of real world, for lack of a better term, experience. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I, um, that makes it sound good. <laughs> I also tell my students, like, don't be afraid to take some time off. In yeah. fact, that's probably a better you need to. thing to do. Um, and then there's, I mean, how much time off? I would, I think there was about five years between almost every one of my degrees, like five years after high school, and then I got a bachelor's degree. About five years after the bachelor's degree, and then I got an MFA. It, it feels like I'm behind a lot of my colleagues who are, you know, 10 or 15 years younger who are already right. have the, their first book and they're, you know what I mean? And they're, but that's how it worked for me. Um, I have another friend who waited like 15 years after like undergraduate to get it. And that, that almost seemed like, I mean, totally legit. Everybody has their own path, but I think he personally thought he probably should have gone back earlier. Yeah. So everybody has their own, um, their own path. And I suppose my, my advice that I would give is if you do have the safety net and the privilege and the gumption and the urge to, um, to just to go to move to New York or it doesn't have to be New York, but New York, I guess is the obvious place and live that life. I say, go for it. Do it while you're young. I wonder if New York is the obvious place now. I mean, it certainly was in the 90s, and it certainly has been historically. But right now, it's uh, it's New York. How can you live there and write? You, I don't. You you maybe Brooklyn. I mean, but there's so many writers there. It's almost a cliche to have to be a Brooklyn writer. It's so expensive to live in Manhattan, and Manhattan is clean now. It's sanitized, so you're not going to have like the uh, Velvet Underground-y kind of experience. So I'm not sure. I mean, I wonder if there's another place that writers should be going. A friend of mine told me this years ago, and he said that places like Rochester, <laughs> that was where he was from. Upstate. And he said, yeah, just basically mm-hmm. places like the Quad Cities, where you can actually live, you can buy a house for right. $75,000, yeah. or Poe Ballantyne bought his house in Chadron, Nebraska for like $25,000, mm-hmm. and he lives in Nebraska in the middle of nowhere, and I think the guy that he's just one of those writers who has makes money on his books, a little bit of money, not yeah. much, but he just lives in like, you know, really rural um, Missouri where you can live super cheap and just, and, and fund a writing career yeah. by, you know, you make $15,000 a year, but you can get by on that. Well, the Quad Cities has a culture. It, it's, it's, um, I was just driving around this morning. I'm always happy in the Quad Cities. Every time I'm driving here, I'm going on a bike ride or going to hang out with friends or be in a bar. It's, so I always have a very positive association with it. But I, I noticed there's all these bars. I mean, it's just, just like it's a real place. In Rockford, where I spend a lot of my time, maybe a, sort of on the low end of that, there's maybe not quite enough mentally stimulating going on there. Quad Cities has Augustana, for example. 
Um, but yeah, I think a place like that, a place that's got maybe emerging is the word of the day in yeah. terms of that, I would recommend. So Portland, you know, is done. I don't, yeah, you, you probably wanna, can't live in Portland anymore. You need to be in the Portland of 15 years ago. And I think there's an art to picking. I, if I were young and I know what I know now and I wasn't, didn't have family and all that, I would think, I would really think strategically about where is the next place that's going to be cool in 10 years. Yeah. I mean, I, and I would look at places like, I would look at bigger places than Quad Cities and Rock, Rochester. I would look at more of the Kansas Cities. The, mm -hmm. you know what, place St. Louis, maybe. Yeah, the place that's big enough to have a major sports team. Mm -hmm. Just, I mean, just in terms of population, not that the sports team. They're just enough people, but yet isn't the hip place where everybody needs to go. Because as soon as it's that, then it's over. Or Albuquerque. Yeah. You know, just a place like where there's a lot of interesting art and stuff. And um, yeah, I think you're right about that. But it's it's almost like picking the stock market, really. Yeah. It's really hard to do. Yeah, it I could think. go the other way. You know, uh, there was a time when Austin was right. totally sleepy and wasn't. And then it became so cool. And, and then by the time everybody realized it was so cool, it was. Couldn't live there. Yeah, it wasn't cool anymore because it's because it's cool. I, I lived in, I went to undergraduate in San Francisco, and in terms of my career, the only regret that I, that I play with sometimes is I could have stayed in San Francisco mm. after my bachelor's degree and just kept, because I was involved in, I was in, involved in this guerrilla art thing with a friend of mine where we would make satirical poetry and put it on the buses the public buses like advertising slots where those little posters go yeah and we would just have like a bag full of those and then stick them up on all the buses and the people were noticing like oh yeah you're those guys that do those poems that, oh, right. that crazy stuff and i and there was a big open mic night kind of culture um and i thought you know if i stayed there and just worked a day job waiting tables and could do that part-time and live cheap with a bunch of people back in those days you could I could have been one of those San Francisco writers, but then I think about it and I think I, I may have been a more successful writer on, in terms of being known, but I would have been a San Francisco writer. I would have been edgy. Mm -hmm. I would have been, there would have been this like real overt <laughs> experimental gimmickry on, cause that's what everything, that's how you get attention in that in that atmosphere that was the dave be. eggers years right totally yeah. and i was very much going in that direction but instead i ended up traveling and doing other stuff and eventually went to atlanta where i got my mfa and those writers had that that southern writing tradition where mm -hmm. it was very quiet very con um, conventional in a lot of ways but really serious about taking your character seriously and really saying something that's worth saying very different from the flash of the San Francisco scene. I think I became a much better writer. And then I ended up moving to the Midwest where, you know, the people that come from the coast, I've said this before, have a kind of a contempt for the middle of, of America. And even people, the Chicago scene is kind of contemptuous of, you know, people who live in the smaller communities. And I think it's been very good for me to, you know, I had a lot to learn put it that way and mm -hmm. i have been learning it and i think it's made me a more thoughtful person um and uh so i almost see like the gods of writing leading me to the place i need to go to learn oh, the right lessons so that i could be the best writer i can but uh, 
I wonder what those gods of writing look like. They gotta be hunched over. Ink stained wretches. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Nearsighted, far sighted. One or the other. Bespectacled. Bespectacled. Bald. Bespectacled. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's got their own path. Yeah. Do what you can, keep at it. Um, yeah, I guess we're not really giving advice on this podcast much. We're just. Be right, you. Boring. You be the best you you can be. That's yes. what I would say. Yes. Okay. These are, we That's should call this episode the origin story. Yeah. That's what it's come come down to. That's true. You we know. did talk about our origins. We need to. Where the greatness started. <laughs> the future greatness. And it's funny to think that neither you or I knew that we were going to end up being as great as we are. But here we are. <laughs> and we still don't know. <laughs> Yet it's happening right before us. It's a well-kept secret. Yes. So should we move on to our final closing gambit? I think is gambit so. the right way to put gambit? I always right. confuse gambit and gambit. A gambit is like a thing you do. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> a and gam- what's a gamut? Like a, I don't know. Never heard of a gamut. A gamut. No, it's a thing. A gamut. I think uh, if Holly it was runs here, the she gamut. would be on her. She would be on her phone and she would know the answer. She's a Holly's different generation from it. She's the she is really the computer. quick at the phone, All right. like always there. You don't have to. Should I look it up? Mm, gamut. Yes. No, I don't want to know. I'd rather just guess. I think gamut means like a wide breadth of things. And, and a gambit, gambit is, is like a trick. An action. Yeah. Yeah. Our closing gambit or gamut of closing things is to talk about what you're reading, what you're writing. Yeah. What you, how's the teaching, that kind of stuff for any or all of the above. What Should you- we just, listen, I'll tell you what. I'm, I'll say the teaching, this was finals week. I love finals week. Yeah. It's, the shoe is finally on the other foot. I've got all the power in the relationship yeah. for once in this. In you the- already got your good evaluations because you've been nice. Yes. And now you can start dropping the C's and D's like And then rain. I start entering the grades into grade books so yep. they see it. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, your participation wasn't as good as what you thought it was. It's all about revenge at that point. You were on your phone a little bit too much. But thank you for the eval. So anyway, yeah, that's over. And um, that really takes up quite a bit of time because you got to, you know, when you're teaching writing, there's a, I, I take a revision. I make them revise something that they turned in and then you got to read that and all that stuff like that. So that's basically all I've been doing this week. What about you? Oh, uh, you know, always the same uh, teaching, having a good term. Got you guys a, have one more week? Yeah. Mm-hmm. One more week before breaking. And, um, you know, there's the teaching is going great. I have a really good um, intro to fiction class, uh, very kind of encouraged by uh, by what they're doing. Um, and uh, the college is going to get a new dean. Our dean, just dean provost, just got accepted a presidency at Hollins University. Hmm. She's leaving. So we're searching for a new dean and everybody's like freaking out, like we got to get the right you know, it's a it's a pretty serious sure, absolutely. position, yeah. and we're changing over to semesters, which is a constant kind mm-hmm. of thing. So, a lot of action going on here at, at Augustana. Um, a lot of little coup like meetings happening behind closed doors where people plot and uh, right. and kvetch and drink beer sometimes when it's behind closed doors of the neighborhood pub. Sure, um, kind of exciting, and so that's the teaching. Do you always think about the Henry Kissinger quote about? Uh... The, um, well, how does it go? Shoot. See, Hollywood have it on their phone. But about how, uh, you know, the politics at the universities are so intense because the stakes are so low. Yeah. Yeah. I love that quote. That. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard it as a quote, but always as a sort of like sloppy paraphrase. Right. Is being kind of, yeah. And attributed to Kissinger, right? Um, 
yeah, maybe. I don't know. No, not really. I don't know who said it. Kissinger. But I believe you. Yeah. It's just this is the first time I've Kissinger. Yeah. We do it a little bit better on this podcast than behind closed doors at your university meetings. Yeah. That's how I know it's Kissinger. I'm reading uh, a book that it was like really cheap on Kindle. And um, students are always writing these like fantasy stories. And I know some some uh, teachers that I know just say, no fantasy, no elves. I'm not going to take it. Right. And uh, I, I that's how, what got me into reading and, and writing ultimately at first. So I don't have a prejudice against it. I don't either. It, it gets kind of tiresome when you're having to read all those like made up names and you're like, all this the world building, all this energy put into coming up with the Galadriel, uh, <laughs> and you know, and yeah, to, yeah. it always sounds like Tolkien, but a little different. And I'm just like, gosh, if you really put all that energy into like building an interesting character rather than just coming up with names for everything. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's just that's just your basic building. I think that fantasy and non and realist kind of fiction has the same goals and it's, you know, the, your characters need to be interesting and complex. There needs to be some kind of a compelling thing happening. The sense of scenery needs to be vivid. And mm-hmm. um, so anyway, I got, I bought on Kindle $2.99, a, wi- a wizard of Earthsea. Oh yeah. Ursula K. Le Guin, sure. who is a bona fide lit person. Um, a goddess in God, the lit world. Totally. And it's awesome. I mean, it's great. Fantasy. Have you not read that before? Yeah, I read it as a kid. As a kid, yeah, me too. And I loved it. Yeah. And then I remember Carl Uwe Knausgaard mentioned in one of his books, oh, he yeah. talked about reading it as a kid and having the same experience of like, oh my God, as I had. And so I, I'm reading it right. again just to get a sense of how a master works in this genre so that I can talk to my students about it and give them some example and also to buy some cred with them. Because when <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I don't like your elves, then they're like, whatever, you're not one of us but yeah. now i can say hey that's not how ursula kayla Gwynn does it and then I can do they know it. are they familiar with that uh, they've heard of i think a wizard of earth sea some of them but they also just recognize that i know the tropes and the you know the dragon there's a dragon that he slays and the way that she talks about magic is very complex yeah. and my experience is that they're all writing they're trying to imitate george r r martin yeah i've never the, read that stuff i never have either but it's in the culture enough. um this book is the it's the martial arts plot. You know what I mean? No. Well, the martial arts plot is always the same. It's a a young, cocky, but talented practitioner goes to work okay. with the master, and the master it teaches patience and doesn't. And the kid gets impatient and leaves the master, screws everything up, makes all comes crawling back to the master to ask for forgiveness, and then finally learns patience and and learns wisdom and then finally becomes more powerful and then goes and fixes the problem right. that and that's exactly what this a wizard of earth is all about and okay. incredibly satisfying the character change like when the character just stops being a petty little brat because that's at the beginning he's prideful and he can't take it like he's competitive and prideful and he gets, and he's really easily manipulated by other people because of that. Mm-hmm. And so these powerful wizards are like manipulating him to do stuff that for their ends, not his. And so he unleashes this evil upon the world that he's like trying has to confront at some point. Right. And then when he he finally learns the kind of patient. Anyway, it's fun. Um, so yeah, that's that. Okay. I also have a little bit of an update, which is 
I'll probably have to apologize for or take back next time. But remember the story that I was talking about in the, that I sent to the Sun? Yes. They accepted it. Oh. Yep. They accepted Mazel it tov. six days after I sent it. That's amazing. That's like the second fastest I've ever had a, a an acceptance. That's terrific. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited. You get that's a thousand bucks. <laughs> Haven't got the check yet. Okay. I'll, well, I'll believe it when I. I'll still split lunch with you then. Yes. I won't make you pay. Well, that's great. That's really good news. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's a good. But so I've been working on revisions of that all week. So mm -hmm. so when they accept something, they have some revisions that they suggest, or they they have a lot of revisions. Oh, huh. they have a really robust editorial kind of thing, and yeah. and uh, they, they, there's they sort of putting you through the ringer a little bit of yeah, that's just not really good. Sean, our friend Sean Chapman, mm -hmm. he was talking about somebody he knew be. Became was a novelist and then went to Hollywood and wrote a screenplay. And at one point, he's like on the set of the screen, you know, as the writer, he's like low, low status, but just kind of sure. there. And the director came up to him and I don't let's say his name is Bill, put his arm around him, walk kind of walks away from the main set. Bill, what do you think about nuclear war? He's like, well, I don't, I don't like it. He's like, I don't either. It's like, what do you think about our main character taking his son out? having a little talk to him about nuclear war, about how he doesn't like it. It's like, yeah. It's like, you think you could write a scene like that? <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> the son does stuff like that. It's yeah. like, what do you, how about these characters do this and say this and okay. And then I'll do it. I'll spend like days. Yeah. And, they, and it doesn't really work. So that's what I've been doing. <laughs> Fun. Awesome. Well, when it comes out, we should link to it on our website yeah. here. Yeah, totally. Oops. All right. Um, all right, Dan. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Kelly. Yep. And thank uh, you, listeners. We miss you, Holly. Special thanks to Augustana College and WOG Radio. This program is produced by Gabe Tucker with funding from the Augustana College English Department and theme music by Sub Atlantic. You can reach us on Facebook at Personal Rejection Letter. See you next time.